Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy Swenson. I'm the CEO of Abstract Forward Consulting. We are a thought-leading consultancy that provides advisory services around cybersecurity, process improvement, digital strategy, and um, related topics. Uh, this is our sixth podcast episode, and uh, in the studio, we have uh, a renowned thought leader, um, Mr. Grant Wood. He is the uh, founder and CEO of Kenosha Labs, and uh, today's topic is really about innovation in cybersecurity and um, product developments. And with that, I'd like Grant to just go ahead and, and give yourself uh, an introduction so our audience knows who you are and where you come from. Sure. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me here today. This is great. Um, yeah, my name is Grant Wood. I, uh, you know, I've been doing high technology and um, product development for about 20 years. Things like uh, high performance financial services systems, cybersecurity, uh, secure root of trust, things like that. And in the last five years or so, I've been doing uh, product innovation for people. So right now, I've started a company called Notion Labs. And Notion Labs uh, is essentially a, a growth and innovation practice. So we help companies invent new products and services. Wow, that is great. And where were you? Where were the last two stops you had before Notion Labs started? Well, you know, I've had an interesting, uh, in, interesting journey. You know, I started my career uh, out of college selling PCs back in the day, you know, sort of pre-dot-com boom. And um, from there, I, I really cut my teeth and learned how the world worked when I was working at Anderson Consulting. And we were running huge databases for the airline and utility industries. And um, from there, I actually lucked out and joined a small consultancy where we did huge e-commerce uh, rollouts for people. So we put Musicland, if you remember Musicland. I do remember Musicland. You know, I, I just have to make a side point. I'm a big music fan. I know my listeners know that I actually have a music library at my home. And I, I remember going to Musicland when CDs were 16, 17, 19, yeah. 20 bucks a pop. A pop, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and at the time, if you remember, Amazon was sort of Wall Street's darling, and the internet was going crazy, but all the brick-and-mortar stores were you know, behind. They, they had no idea how to do this internet thing, and e-commerce was where all the bleeding-edge work was. And our the company I was with at the time, we had gotten this contract, and I remember the launch day was a really huge deal, and we ended up getting a lot of phenomenal coverage out of the Wall Street Journal where they had basically come out on the cover and said, finally, someone's going to compete with Amazon. And it was a big deal. And then from that, we got pulled into, uh, we got pulled into rescuetarget.com. We got brought into some online brokerages and things. I ended up leaving that consultancy and starting my own, the first company I started with a friend of mine. And we were out doing a, a distributed collaboration platform that was really heavy on cryptography and peer-to-peer -peer networking and things like that. That, at the time, were really difficult concepts for people to grasp. Um, we did that for about five years. And actually, in between that and doing some of the things I've done in the last few years, I actually um, worked as a filmmaker for a while. Uh, so I produced films, shorts, features, um, done a bunch of commercial stuff, industrials. And that was a lot of fun because... In a lot of ways, developing software and working with people to develop things that they have never created before is about storytelling. And right. so going and making films is very much the same thing. You No two films are the same. And, and there's a saying in movies that says, if you want to learn how to make this movie, you got to make this movie. Because no two are the same. Even though it seems like, well, you're doing something that people do all the time, how hard could it be? Well, we've all seen movies. How many of them are your favorite? 
Oh, not, not many of them. Film is very hard. And, um, you know, we at Abstract Forward, we have this creative agency approach. And I know with your film background, you also have that creative blood in you. And film is very hard. Uh, most films are garbage. But to the films that transcend um, time and become, you know, masterpieces, um, when I think of masterpiece films, I think of, you know, Back to the Future. Yeah. I think of Gone with the Wind and um, a lot of other films. And I think that the Minnesota film scene is definitely interconnected with the technology scene, for sure. It absolutely is. Um, in fact, I think a lot of people have come and gone in and out of both of those worlds. Um, again, probably for similar reasons that I did. It's it's challenging, and there's a lot of similarities between developing software platforms and programs uh, to developing films. You, you have to have the end goal in mind, but what you end up with is never what you originally sort of thought it was going to be. Um, but if you don't have a solid plan, you're never going to get anything done. What I always talk to people about with um, with product development is um, product development's a lot like film development. You have never watched 60% of a film. If you don't get the whole film made, you have zero film. No one releases a film that isn't done. You have to get the entire thing done, the beginning, the middle, the end, everything. You have to have the score. You have to have the editing. You have to have your special effects. You have to have your titling. You have to have all the employment contract. You know, all the things that you need to make a film, you have to have them all done. And product development is the exact same way. If you go to market with something that doesn't have everything in place, you, you really literally have nothing. We know that sometimes there's there's things missing with innovation development, but in your mind, Grant, with your company, what's wrong with how others are thinking about innovation today? That's a great question. Uh, in fact, I've spent several years working on that exact question. Um, when we think about innovation, we, we sort of think about the, the titans in that space, the, the Christian Clayton's. Um, or I'm sorry, Clayton Christensen and um, the Steve Blanks and people who are really thought leaders around different styles of innovation and, and thinking. And one of the things that I learned is that there's nothing wrong with how we think about innovation. It's, it's primarily that the picture is incomplete. We think of innovation as a process that starts with ideas that you get winnowed down into choosing something you're going to go do, and then you go through a development process. So whether that's some internal NPI or NPD process that an organization has, or if it's a lean or agile process someone's using, it doesn't really matter. All of those processes are focused on the same thing, which is to get a, a successful product that is going to do well against competitors and delight the customers. The problem is when we really look inside organizations, what they run into is they're missing the other half of the picture, which is the context with which that process is taking place. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the vast majority of new product initiatives never see the light of day. And so if you're only focusing on following sort of the path, following the process around innovation, you're missing something that's really, really critical around innovation, which is this innovation isn't happening in a vacuum. The world around it's shifting and it's happening within an organization, which in many cases can be a very complicated human-driven organization where you've got all sorts of other factors that have potentially a much bigger impact on whether the product even sees the light of day uh, than the things that we're addressing in our innovation program. I'll, I'll give you an example. When you talk to people who have done a lot of product development in their career and you go up to them and you say, hey, tell me about the coolest thing that you ever worked on, okay? 
um, you will get a, an amazing story about, oh, it was this coolest thing and we tested it with these customers and we did this thing. And it was the first time ever. And people will get really, really energized. You'll see them sort of right. light up. They're talking about it, right? And that's, that's great. And that's what gets people who do this for a living really fired up. And then you say, well, where's that product now? And then you just, you just, it's like a balloon plop. They, they, they just sort of, they, they sort of implode a little and you can see the light leave their eyes and they go, oh, well, yeah, it actually that we never finished it. It, um, the program got shut down. So I want to say one thing in response to that. And that is every product has a life cycle. Correct. You know, when we talk about innovation, product development, you got to keep in mind, whatever the product is, yeah. it's going to have a life cycle, maybe longer, maybe shorter. You know, I think a snap bracelets, those were once thought of as innovative when I was in <laughs> elementary school. And, yeah. you know, you just you, you get them, you snap them on your wrist and they automatically connect and they were in all it's these overnight cool fad, you overnight know. fad. And, and in, in a lot of ways, fidget spinners, you know, you know, if, if the product <laughs> makes money and serves a need, even if that need is emotional or trendy for for that duration of the product. If you make the money and, and it serves a market need, more power to you. Um, but I think you're more in the actual software and technology-based products. And I know you, you in some of your um, description of your, your thought leadership, you, know, you, you talk about reality-based in, innovation and mm -hmm. this proper perspective for strategy. Tell me what sort of feedback you're getting from your customers in the community about that. Yeah, that's, that's resonating a lot with people right now. Um, there's a lot of people out helping companies to develop products. And one of the things that's really unique about what our team does is because we've got perspectives across all different industries, we don't just do software and technology. That's a big part of it. And people need that. But we also do physical product, packaged goods, pretty much anything. Innovation can come from anywhere and we work with anybody. But where reality comes in is sort of how we talk about our approach. What we say is that innovation isn't just the process of making the product. It's also helping you understand how we can get the product past what's slowing down your current initiatives. And oftentimes that's the things happening within the company that will accidentally shut down the program. So I'll give you an example of this. It, it turns out the main reason most programs never see the light of day, most products actually never get on a store shelf or in the hands of the customers, is that companies shut down the programs. And why do they shut them down? Well, for a lot of really good reasons. The, those reasons go across a couple of different areas. The main one are organizational change and then financial change or financial disruption. So organizational change is the leadership of an organization, the people with P&L responsibility for actually developing new products and controlling those budgets. Imagine what happens when someone gets hired, someone gets fired, someone gets promoted, or sure. the scope of their work changes. They now have more responsibility or less responsibility, or we simply move products across divisions. Now you move into a broader category of what happens when an organization's involved in a merger. They're buying a company, they're absorbing a company, they're merging with another company, they get bought by somebody else. And then you move into the financial disruptors, which are, we don't think we're gonna hit our quarterly numbers, or we, we think next year is gonna be disruptive, or there was a major weather event, or a hurricane, or a war, or things that are external to the company that cause certain decisions to be happening. Remember, innovation and product development only happens when people feel safe, when they feel like they have the trust of their organization, and they're willing to take risks. All new product development is risk-taking. And so, because humans are the people inside these organizations making decisions, when disruptive things happen within the organization, it tends to make people want to take fewer risks. 
and it tends to make people go back to what they were already doing, which are supporting existing products that are already bringing in revenue. And so what we try and do with our process is help bring an understanding of the reality of developing a product within your organization to light so that our process is now going to be understood as a great way of sort of leveling the playing field and giving every opportunity the best possible chance to, first off, get into the hands of customers and then to succeed in the marketplace. Sure. And a good example of an innovative product or an innovative company is Apple. And I know this is mm -hmm. really easy to go to. Everybody goes to Apple. And it's just because there's so many use cases they have with the different products, whether it's the you know, it's the MacBook or it's the um, iPad or iPod mm -hmm. and then the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And Apple has a culture which kind of is a catalyst for these innovative releases. But in your experience, Grant, um, talk about what are some of the measures. How do we measure that a product is innovative? Because a company, any company that could be a client of yours um, or a client of mine, they, they have products existing. Yeah. And if they take those products, so maybe they have 10 products, some of those products more profitable, some of them less profitable, but they know what they're, they measure and monitor their products, how much they're selling, how much profit they make, and they know where they're at. You're trying to do something far more complex, far more challenging, and that is help them get a new product or change their existing product right. to serve an unmet need, to take a different angle at the market, and that's really hard. But again, how do you measure that? Yeah, a couple of different ways. So one of the first things that we do when we're working with uh, a CEO in an organization or sometimes it's a senior vice president responsible for a, a number of product lines um, is we build what we call fit and fitness criteria. And the fit and fitness criteria addresses exactly what you're asking about. Every organization has different long-term goals. And part of understanding what is going to be innovative for a particular company is understanding the market, understanding where trends are, and understanding what they do today really well and what they're maybe perhaps not so good at. The fit and fitness criteria give us sort of a shorthand. It's sort of us helping to understand in a measurable way what's the vision for the future so that as we come in and start looking at ideas and we start harvesting ideas from within their organization, we have a really quick way of understanding, does this actually fit that criteria? Uh, I'll give you a short example. Two things that we look at with a lot of clients are whether something is new and whether something's different. New is, do we do this today? Is, it, is there a revenue stream attached to something that looks a lot like that today? Different is, do our existing competitors do this? For a company that wants to grow revenue and, and, and innovate, it's not always about doing something that's completely new to the world. It's sometimes figuring out what's new for your own company mm -hmm. and figuring out how to choose different competitors to go compete with because you may have an advantage in your supply chain, in your channel, in your ability to manufacture wow. or your ability to develop. That makes really good sense. And it kind of reminds me, if I think of... so. If we kind of shift a little bit more to cybersecurity yeah. and the products in cybersecurity, it seems like there's so much buzz and talk and concern about cybersecurity that every company that is a tech company or mm -hmm. has a considerable tech wing to their company now has some sort of security tool offering. Yeah. And they're, they're chasing the easy money or they're chasing the hot fad of a, of a topic. Yeah. And, but the, the more challenging question is, are the products they're making actually decent? And an even more challenging question is, are the products that they're making actually 
near innovation or at an innovative level? And the answer is the vast majority of the products that are made in security are mediocre at best. Yeah, and and I, you know you deal with this quite a bit actually in your work. I know so. The thing that I find really interesting about the security space is if we go back to sort of best practices to build innovative products, right? Um, what's the main thing that determines success? It's really customer fit. Does the customer understand? It? Are you solving a need? The problem with security is security is always a trade-off between convenience and security. Right. And so for a consumer, we're almost always selling on convenience and we're selling on value. The problem is in security, value is the absence of something happening. And right. so it's a very tough sell. And so your customer base tends to be wildly ignorant about the value that's being provided. And so it's very difficult to convince them to do the, like the second and third steps. So they might buy a product and then are they doing all the other things along with that product that they need to do to really be secure? And it's very difficult. And I, I'm sort of interested like... When you're in doing these things, I know you have the capability to come in and immediately show an impact. And what happens when you discover all of the other things that a company needs to do? What, how, how, do you, how do you work with them to, to convince them that there's these other things that they need to do that they may not get another value from because the value may be something that is the absence of something. Protection is the absence of an attack or the absence of something being stolen, right? Absolutely right. Well, the best way to think about cybersecurity is to tie it in with your brand, your reputation. Mm. And if you have several major security incidents, your brand and your reputation, your revenue is going to be negatively impacted. Sure. You're going to have lawsuits, perhaps. Um, customers are going to leave you, perhaps. Regulators may investigate and fine you, perhaps. Um, you may not um, have a favorable deal with the M&A. So take Yahoo, um, and they had this big data breach, and they were going to be... Um, acquired by some larger entity. It was a Verizon that was going to acquire them. I don't recall, but it affected the valuation. So yeah. valuations are greatly affected um, when you have a cyber breach. Uh, executive officers at companies really need to think of cybersecurity as associated with all types of risks with the company. If you have enough breaches and incidents, you actually can be out of business. Sure. So you may have a bunch of great products that are making you lots of money, but if your reputation is tarnished from too many breaches, those revenue streams may not be as good or they, they may drop, they may go away. Yeah, and there's a really interesting sort of asymmetric uh, approach that companies take to cybersecurity. You know, the, the large service providers have real-time teams I mean, and sometimes incredibly large multinational teams doing real-time security mitigation, whereas your local coffee chain... <laughs> You know, that's not their business. They're not a digital company. They, they exist in the physical world with storefronts, and they don't have a real-time international team looking at real-time threats from different attack actors. And so um, the ability of companies to even internally educate themselves about what a threat is or where opportunities are for them to improve or provide value uh, to their customers around protecting their information is, uh, is, is sort of all over the map. So when you're out talking to people about what they should do, do you approach it differently based on, you know, how, what, their, what their IT team looks like or what industry they're in? Well, some industries more regulated than others. But really what I start with is measuring what you're doing right now. Because before we get far at all, we need to know what are you doing right now to measure where you're at from a security posture standpoint. 
once we do that, you know, we know you have antivirus. We know you're using um, two-factor authentication. You know, we know you're setting up um, groups for certain uh, work functions like accounting and finance is a separate group. And uh, in that group, there's access to these certain systems and databases. And then there's a marketing group and a mm -hmm. sales group, and they have access to certain systems and databases, and the two don't cross over. Right, uh, right. And then, of course, you have you know another group, and that would be the IT people. And then you have a higher group of IT people. That would be the IT administrators, very small. And the IT administrators group, that would have a special control and approval process for somebody to, to get into that group. And all these different groups, I just gave up three, four examples here, but uh, at a midsize or upper midsize organization, there's, there may be dozens or even 20 plus 30 groups that uh, different role types could be in. And all these groups are separate from one another. They're all auditable and they all have access to the relevant applications and data and no more, which kind of gets at this least privilege principle, yeah. which really means you're only going to have access to what you need to have access to to do your job no more, no less. And if you need access to some additional system, you can put in a request. That'll be reviewed. That'll be auditable. And someone at a higher level will review that. And, and this type of practice really helps slow down a breach when it happens or slow down right. the exploit when it is in the network because it's only going to be able to see as much as the group it got access to. It may right. not be in that accounting finance you know, controller area. And if it, you know, accounting and finance is an area of control where you may have your employee benefit, your payroll, a lot of confidential, very high dollar information. You really want to protect access to, to that environment. But another thing that we focus on after we measure and figure out what's in, in place is what are you really doing to actively train your employees on a regular basis about updates? Well, you have, you've written a paper where you outline like 12 areas that people can actually go through. Right. And, and, and having read through it, it's like a lot of the stuff seems like common sense. But the real question I have is like when you're out talking to people, how many of them are actually doing all 12 of them? Well, um, I bet it's close to zero depending on the size of the company. You know, I, I spend most of my time speaking with and working with small and mid-sized businesses. Mm -hmm. And they're not as defended as the enterprise clients that, you know, I've worked for them in the past, but uh, they just have way more money and resources. So, you know, I think they're doing some of them um, and some of them they're, they could be doing more of. Under these areas fall policies, procedures, training, um, and then testing, you know, you gotta be testing. Can an exploit get through? You, you have to hire a red team. If you don't have a red team internally, you're you're, you're going to have to hire a red team to come in and assess how how strong are you. And those are do some your li do your listeners all know what a red team is? I think that's a I think that's a good term of art in the security world. But I would bet a lot of small and mid sized companies don't ha haven't worked with one before. Yeah, how what a red team is is it's a external group of of good hackers that are hired by your organization to come in with your approval. So the thing about red teaming or pen testing is that you need to have the appropriate approvals, meaning your executive leader needs to sign a formal document that says, I give you authority to try to break into my network. So this is like if you've seen the movie Sneakers, Robert Redford and, and Sidney Poitier go in and they rob a bank. And the next day, they bring the money that they've stolen from the bank to the bank directors, and they say, yeah, your bank security is garbage. We robbed your bank last night, and you didn't even know it. 
And that's that's sort of what a red team is, but in a digital way. Right. And and there's a certain limit of what they can do because, uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of things in hacking are illegal. Right. Right. So um, a red team has a permission to do a certain type of testing right. and really no more. And then they report back on that certain type of testing and um, there's learning from that. Mm-hmm. And again, it kind of goes from you can't see your defenses like an outsider can see them. Yeah. So yeah, we 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 offer pen testing, uh, red teaming services here at Abstract Forward, um, but we're really more of a strategy firm, really advising um, security leaders and technology leaders on how to think creatively. Sure. How to overcome some of the bureaucratic roadblocks? Because in my experience. A lot of these leaders are overconfident. They rely on um, a superficial title, thinking <laughs> that that'll get them results, thinking that that will drive the team, thinking that uh, they're still going to collect the big paycheck and they're still going to be a great leader. Well, at the end of the day, they're none of that. They may think they're that, but they're not that because the true leaders, the true innovators are those that challenge and, and ruffle the status quo, which is hard to do. So we at Abstract Forward, we know we're going to have some people who are you know, uncomfortable with that because they like the order of things as they are now. But in technology and security, everything changes. I often make this analogy about security to people, and I'll make it here. I think it's, it's important for our listeners to know this. Security is not like basketball, all right? In basketball, you get good at basketball because the rules never change. The court dimensions don't change. The length of the shots have certain limits based on the court. Uh, you know, the geometry of the court, the basketball, the hoop, all that. None of that changes. So a person can practice basketball and understand the rules and get good at it over time based on practice. Insecurity, Grant, do you think it's at all like that? Right. It's it, not at all. Not at yeah. all because the rules are constantly changing. So the one thing that I've I've seen from some of these CISOs, uh, chief information security officers that I met with is there's two kinds of them. There's the kind that, that want to rely on their past experience and believe that that experience is going to be relevant today. And it isn't necessarily. In fact, a lot of times that experience is the biggest harm to their security today. And a lot of times they don't want to admit that. And that's why who are the hackers? They are 16, 17, 18, 15-year-olds, no college education. Right. They're the ones who don't know there's a way things should be done. Right. When you, when you are aware of what the rules are, you tend to expect certain things. And when you ignore those rules or are ignorant of those rules, you'll look for any opportunity to, to, uh, to attack something. So we were, we were talking earlier about uh, the Fortnite hack. Um, and, and some of how that, um, has played out and like how those types of vulnerabilities come forward. And that's a really great example. I think you can talk to it probably better than I can, but it, that's a really great example of you have internal teams developing things, adding features, building in, um, ways of doing things. And because they're familiar with how their things work, they're comfortable with the way they've already secured things. But to an outsider, someone was able to discover. Do you want to talk about what exactly was exposed and how people were able to uh, explore? Or actually, what the what the impact was is maybe a better place to start. Absolutely. So Fortnite is an online gaming platform, and um, I'm actually advising a startup that has a, is building a similar online gaming platform. 
you know, the nice thing about the online gamers is they're very creative. They're very smart. Uh, they have a really innovative culture. But what happened to Fortnite is they had a security flaw, which allowed hackers to uh, actually make purchases and listen to other players, which, um, you know, really unfortunate. Um, a quote from the news release on the Fortnite hack. We were made aware of vulnerabilities and they were soon addressed. An Epic Games spokesperson said, we thank Checkpoint for bringing this to our attention. As always, we encourage players to protect their accounts by not reusing passwords and using strong passwords and not sharing account information with others. By the way, that, that type of PR response. So I, I always laugh when I hear things like that because what they did there is they did a little PR trick. The problem with the system wasn't people reusing passwords. That was not, that was not the vulnerability. But by stating that in their public response, they basically changed the narrative in people's minds from being one where they accidentally allowed something to be done on their platform to one where it may have been the user's fault because they didn't change their password. Right, right. Well, so anyway, it's an old PR trick on security vulnerabilities where you basically encourage people. It's, it's, it's basically saying, hey, there's a plague sweeping the nation, and uh, we just want to remind everyone to wash your hands. It's like, well, okay, that sort of implies it's everyone else's uh, fault, but really it's just it's the way the plague works. Um, it's being spread through, through some other thing maybe. You know, the, when I think of the online gaming community and I think of the creativity that the, the gamers have, um, I think of this concept of swatting. You ever heard of swatting? Yep. Mm -hmm. Where you have these, these, these online games like Fort, Fortnite, and others, they have super serious followings. I mean, these people log into these gaming systems, they play online, they stream mm -hmm. it, and other people watch them. Right. And there are gamers they that watch get, their Twitch feed or, yeah. you know, whatever. There Twitch are gamers feed. that get so good and so big that they literally have 10, 15, 20, 25,000 followers. And um, other gamers that are competitive to them want them to lose. And a lot of times there's money prizes mm -hmm. associated with these gaming competitions or other sort of prizes. And of course you have the status of winning the game, but, uh, and these systems are supposedly secure. I mean, these, these companies that are making these online gaming platforms, they're the design is to be secure, but, uh, these other gamers are so creative, enthusiastic about winning that they're able to somehow social engineer or hack to get pieces of information about the private address and uh, other information about gamers, and they're able to swat them, which is horrible. But yeah, they basically dox um, the people private. It's like a private dox. So they'll they'll collectively gather people from their social media accounts and from other online sources until they can figure out where someone actually lives, and then they'll call in a nine one one call, and the SWAT team will show up, bang down the door as if someone's being uh, held at knife point, which is often what they'll say. And um, so someone will be live, live streaming, and then in comes the SWAT guys throwing the person onto the floor, and everybody sees it live on their Twitch. And um, it's pretty devastating. Someone's actually been killed because of this. Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. and the individuals prosecuted for that. They yep. actually tracked them it down. Was a 13-year-old, I think. Who yeah. yeah, and, and the, the irony of this is the, the kids or teens, or maybe they're adults, but the people who are creative enough and smart enough to do this – they could be hired by a security consulting company and they'd do great. They have what it takes. Those minds are what we need to solve the security problem. They're, they're applying it in the wrong context with lack of morality. You get those people to work for you know, a Microsoft or um, 
trend micro or semantic, those, those kids are needed and give them some additional training. Those are the people that we should be trying to um, raise up and, and train and coach because they're the ones that have the creativity that, that are going to solve this complex security problem. It's not the traditional, you know, I've, I've got promoted this level, I got promoted at that level, you know, I got appointed to this board because of my family connection. Those are the traditional good old boys clubs of, of leaders who lead a life of privilege, but they're not the smartest and they're not the most creative. Well, they're not closest to where the actual stuff is being done. They may have started off that way, you know, as someone's career progresses and they transition. There's always, for technologists in particular, there's always a transition point in a career where someone will transition from being highly, highly technical and they're gonna make a choice. Do I continue forward and, I, and now become a gray beard in the basement and I'm the most senior, most technical person or do I transition into management and to leadership? And in security, that same decision has to be made career-wise. And, as you become more of a leader in the organization, you have to be more of an advocate for the other security people in your organization who are closer to the actual threats and actually are closer to what's happening out in the rest of the world. And so it becomes a, a very difficult um, you know, balancing act for people career-wise is um, they still need to be, sort of be close to the metal, as we used to say, um, and understand what's really happening at the lowest possible level in order to be able to take action very quickly and respond to things. But at the same time, in a lot of very complex organizations, people who are going to be successful doing that are also very successful at working across the company because oftentimes mitigating security risks has to take precedence over other initiatives that are going on. And going to a large company and saying, hey, we, we may have to hold off launching a product we've been working on for years because we have found a, something that needs to take precedent that takes a lot of political finesse and it takes a lot of work. And so you need sort of a mix of those skills. It gets, um, it, it could be a tough challenge to have those positions in big companies. For sure. Uh, I wanna move on to a current event item that I know you've been uh, tracking since about 2017. Yeah. And that is the um, machine learning atomic glass uh, issue. So tell, tell our audience what exactly this is, how it's relevant to what you do at, uh, at your company, and then how we can apply that to security, potentially. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so we talk to senior executives all the time about what it takes to actually you know, go out and get new products in the hands of their customers. And one of the things that we've gotten challenged on um, was we were saying to different people, uh, hey, you know, disruption is increasing. And uh, we had a, a senior vice president at a fairly large company come back and say, you know what? my whole career people have been saying that things are getting faster but you know what the pace of change is always the same and being people who are sort of evidence-based um, we kind of wanted to respond back and say well actually uh, that that is sort of a misnomer we can actually demonstrate with with some simple examples that the pace of change has actually increased quite a bit and one of the best examples is um, uh, came out of some reporting from 2017. A team of researchers um, from NIST, uh, the Department of Energy, and a major research college here in the United States took uh, some machine learning um, algorithms that they had developed, and they applied them into material sciences. And specifically, they were looking for formulations for metallic glasses. So what a metallic glass is, everyone thinks of Star Trek, uh, one of the Star Trek IV, they, they make transparent aluminum. 
Um, that's not what a metallic glass is necessarily. Metallic glass is a metallic alloy whose molecular composition is more like a glass in that they, they, it doesn't form crystals. And what you end up with is a material that is incredibly strong and incredibly light, these highly desirable materials. And these things were theorized um, to exist about 100 years ago. And in the last 60 years, uh, research groups around the globe have averaged making and testing around 100 formulations per year. So the pace at which we're sort of looking for things, that's not even discovering them, but this is just the pace at which we're looking for them, has been about 100 in a year. In 2017, in I think it was like over a nine-month period, this team just sort of using a, a rudimentary machine learning setup along with just sort of their own going in and tweaking things based on intuition, they were able to uh, develop and test 20,000 formulations in one year, which ended up resulting in three successful formulas. Now, that's not a 2x improvement in the speed of research. That's not a 10x. That's 160 times the annual rate of research. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Abstract Forward podcast. My name is Jeremy Swenson. I'm your host here and CEO of Abstract Forward Consulting. You are listening to Grant Wood of... Um, Kenosha Labs, and he is describing the pace of innovation related to um, atomic glass. People often confuse machine learning and artificial intelligence. Machine learning quite simply answers one question, which is what's going to happen next? That's all it does. But what's going to happen next could be the answer to the question, what should we test next? So given a bunch of properties about the universe, we can use a machine learning algorithm to anticipate what would happen if we tested this? So you could go through and decide what you wanted to test next in terms of what do we think a good soda formula should be, right? Um, artificial intelligence is often confused with machine learning because machine learning seems like it's anticipating what a person or something sentient would do, but artificial intelligence is much, much different. Um, artificial intelligence tries to mimic how a human would behave in a particular situation. And it could be anything from how they might answer a question, how they might understand sounds to be words, how they might steer a car in traffic, things like that. Uh, but they tend to be um, orders of magnitude more complex um, than a simple machine learning. And the two overlap fundamentally in how we go and execute them. So there's a lot of overlap between the two. You, artificial intelligence systems today tend to um, rely on everything that we do in machine learning. So hopefully that's a little bit helpful. Well, so where it's really helpful then is for fundamental research, helping researchers rather than having to have someone sit there and go, hey, you know, I have an idea on a new formulation we should try. You can have the system do it and the system is going to potentially have a much higher success rate or at least speed up the rate at which you can find variations that you could test. Uh, which in this case is what happens. And the reason that materials research is so important for, for understanding the pace of innovation in this particular case is if you are developing products that rely on, in, in this case, metals, um, and the new formulations are now made available, um, your entire industry may change overnight if someone other than you um, figures out a way to process these new metals or incorporate them into products. And so um, I always describe sort of the economy as an onion. On the outside of the onion, you have sort of all the products and services that are available to, to consumers. 
you peel back that layer and now you have all the things that support that outer layer. And now you keep peeling into the inside. And the very center of the onion is our understanding of the laws of physics and how the universe works. If our understanding of, of the universe expands in this particular case 160 times, the layers around it need to grow the proportional amount in order for the economy to sustain the rate of improvement. If it can't grow that fast, those layers are going to fracture, and that's going to create right. opportunities for people to step in and take up the extra opportunity that's presented by us knowing things that we can't, uh, that we don't have the capacity to, to handle today. So for big companies, this is really important because this particular way of doing fundamental scientific research, at the end of, of 2017, when the article was actually published um, in a scientific journal, peer-reviewed scientific journal, by that time, that exact approach had already been applied to six or seven other materials researchers. And what's really interesting is they immediately were applied to areas where there's already incredible scrutiny and incredible uh, competition in, in materials research around like semiconductor platforms, um, uh, battery formulations, and things like that. Where it gets really interesting, though, for people when you're talking about disruption is what happens when that technique, which is, by the way, incredibly cheap, astonishingly cheap to apply how it. cheap um well consider buying off-the-shelf hardware and well think about the cheapness in terms of the pace so if you were doing a hundred of something in a year and for let's say double the cost you are now doing 160x that that's how cheap it is kind of like the exponentially decreasing price of storage space. Exactly. Very, very similar. And so when you look at this, if you aren't understanding that that curve is happening in areas, um, now what happens when you're in an area that doesn't have much competition and research going on in materials? So the example I always give is there's a big industry around foam. Foam's a really big deal. It's in like <laughs> a ridiculous number of products you buy are based on some sort of foam, whether it's the seats in your car, the cushions in your house, clothing that you buy, like foams are everywhere. Foam, folks. Grant Wood <laughs> just made a call out to foam. Yeah. So foam formulations end up being a really big deal because there's a number of dimensions that foam needs to care about. How long will it last? How firm is it? How soft is it? How much does it weigh? What happens when you apply... Oh, but then you look at the number of companies that are working in that area. How many of them are using these machine learning techniques to look for new form formulations? So again, take things where you don't think there's much competition, where the stakes aren't nearly as high, and now take a very inexpensive approach to accelerating disruption and apply it into all these niche areas. And now you can see how across the entire economy, you're sowing the seeds for massive disruption where the capacity wow. that existing companies have can't keep pace with all the things we're discovering. So this is why companies in general need to be looking not just at how they do innovation today, but they need to be figuring out how do we accelerate the rate at which we are developing our own products such that as new discoveries are coming along, we can stay not just at pace with that, but we can take advantage of more things that are coming in that may fundamentally reshape entire industries. Okay, I want to go back to a couple of things that you said, and thanks for re-describing uh, machine learning in a better way than <laughs> I did. But what I do want to say is that decision tree logic is sort of a precursor to machine learning because... Yeah, neural networks. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Part of the problem that organizations face that you're talking about is how to make a decision with conflicting huge data sets. 
-hmm. and machine learning can help them work through those data sets to weed stuff out and better make a decision. As uh, they get closer to an artificial intelligence, it's going to be even better. But um, I want to go back and, and summarize for the audience the, the NIST cybersecurity framework. I know we, we alluded to it earlier, um, but the first part of it is to identify. You know, Like I said, we've got to identify how are we vulnerable? Are we managing our assets? How are we governing our, our assets? What are we doing for risk management? And then we've got to protect. Uh, we have to have access control, awareness and training. We have to cover data security, uh, of course, maintenance um, to those assets. And then we have to detect, and that is including anomalies and events. And that's really where machine learning uh, often fits in with the, uh, yep. with the security apparatus, these anomaly detection tools that are taken in huge data sets. The, the problem with the anomaly detection tools is they have huge, huge false positives. And to the uh, CISOs and technology leaders that I've talked to, they are very frustrated with these false positives. So They're also very performance intensive. So in a lot of architectures, turning on uh, these types of features ends up having uh, noticeable performance impacts in, in um in network traffic. And so um, it ends up being something where they increase the number of phone calls they're getting from their, their internal customers because things aren't as performant as they were. So it can have a direct impact on other parts of their sort of their customer base um, to actually do the things that they're needing to do. So there is like a double whammy of you have a lot of false positives that you now have to go and track down, but you also have unhappy customers because things aren't as performant as they used to be. Yeah, and we would hope that organizations can do something about the unhappy customers um, side of things. When I think of the social media era that we're in, um, customers have a very big voice in uh, who they choose. And if you have a lot of negative reviews and it's out there online, you're going to lose customers. And that's not what you want to have happen. But moving on from the detect part of the NIST cybersecurity framework uh, is the respond part. And that is basically after we've detected something, whether we are using our anomaly detection um, machine learning, now we've detected something, we need to go and respond to it. So we have to plan how we respond to it. We have to communicate how we respond to it. Then we have to have a mitigation strategy and then... Um, in improvements or patching to, to how we're responding to it. And the last part of the NIST cybersecurity framework is recover. So if that means we had some ransomware, we're going to have to go to our last full backup and we're going to have to recover. And we need to have planning documentation for how we recover. And of course, we need to have communications uh, about how we recover as well. But that is the NIST cybersecurity framework. Again, that is identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. I know you're a fan of NIST, Grant Wood mm -hmm. of Kenosian Labs. And thank you so much for being on the Abstract Forward podcast. I want to ask you to summarize for our audience sort of your advice having, you know, the 15 plus years in innovation, product development, technology, uh, parts of security. Uh, summarize for our audience, what are the top five things they can do to be more innovative? And I want to make a side comment. A lot of organizations throw this innovation buzzword around. And a lot of organizations even have titles of innovation director or innovation lab. And I'm very critical of those titles and those labs because I don't think that the organizations can actually get the innovation they're desiring themselves. I do think they need to go to a company like yours. And how I've seen companies get innovation, and you can comment on this, they buy other companies. They get the innovation. They get the creative right. talent from the startups that 
And usually how it is at first, they blew the startup off. They didn't take the startup seriously or startup seriously. And now the startup has something that's unique, that's patentable. They're getting some buzz. They're getting some media. Now they want to dance with the startup where before they blew them off. And that's the irony between the startup and creative community and the big establishment business bureaucracy community. But again, Grant Wood, thank you so much for being here. Summarize for our audience how they can be more innovative. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you having me here. This has been a really fun conversation, and I think that the work that you're doing is really interesting. So I think that um, I can probably best answer your question uh, in, a, in a simple way by saying people really need to understand that innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it's not magic, and it's a lot of hard work. And so to be more innovative, Companies need to trust the people that they're asking to do innovation. They need to give them extended periods of time so that failure can happen outside of the normal expectations of existing products and services. Um, and they need to look to longer time horizons. Innovation does not happen in 18 months. Uh, innovation is not a quick turn. Often we hear companies coming in saying, we just need some early wins. And that's really great, but early wins aren't how your company stays in business for the next 10 years in the face of disruptors. Um, you're bringing up in innovation through acquisition as a strategy. It's a very, very common strategy, especially in the larger Fortune 100 space. Um, it's also a strategy that's failing to be nearly as effective as it was in the past. It's, acquisition is always an incredibly hard thing anyway. Um, to merge two cultures and to bring in people and then to continue having the acquisition be effective. On its own, that's a challenging topic and, and people have written books about it and it's a, it's a big thing. But there's a bigger challenge with that in terms of innovation today. I, I think that it doesn't work. I think traditional companies that are expecting that to work um, are missing what's happened in the Valley over the last decade where companies aren't being bought when they are doing 20 million in revenue year over year, which is a normal target for acquisition. Uh, it's a normal pro uh, threshold. Companies are being bought pre-revenue simply to get the people in the company. These are aqua hires. They, they have no revenue. They may not even have any customers. This is a recruiting technique that's being done. And the companies that are doing it, they're not hiring away idiots. They're hiring the best and brightest because they see how good they are. Right. And so if the best and brightest are, being, are having their companies bought pre-revenue, what's left? This is a pipeline because if you're waiting for someone to hit 20 million in revenue year over year, the number of companies that will ever grow to that size is, is dramatically shrunk because companies that are not in your industry space are acquiring those. You have to remember today, kids in agriculturally uh, or in agricultural engineering programs today who grew up on farms, grew up in farms that had broadband internet access. Kids graduating from MIT and Stanford have never known a world that didn't have social media and didn't know um, and didn't have uh, internet access. These are kids that don't want to go and work for traditional big industrial manufacturing companies. They don't want to go and work for traditional banking companies. They want to go work for internet companies, and so they're surrounding themselves in an innovation culture that expects to move at a different pace and understands the world in a different way. So if you wow. are in a traditional space and you want to continue to be innovative, you have to understand the reality of the world that you're in today, and you have to see that your opportunities may be coming from places you didn't have before, and you have to take some new approaches with your senior most leadership to foster and cultivate a culture of innovation that probably needs to be done in parallel with what you're doing today, because you need to keep the lights on for today until your new innovation programs are gonna bear fruit. And I will point out that the best companies in the world 
have typically got five to seven year time horizons where they expect to pay off. Whereas your venture backed firms need a two year payoff. And so really big companies are the ones that can actually make huge bets. Um, and if I were in a leadership position in most large companies, I would say you need four to five moonshot programs going at any given time um, as a way of hedging against disruption. Totally agree with that. And a company that comes to mind here locally that I know you and I know well is 3M because they have this mm -hmm. um, culture that allows the employees to have um, moonshot projects. I yeah. think 20% of any given employee's time can be and is encouraged to be on one of these moonshot projects because a lot of learning. Mm -hmm. um, sure, there's some failures there. Absolutely. But if we take the case of Kodak, and I've, you know, I've mentioned this in some of my articles, um, why did Kodak fail? I mean, you know, figuring out that cameras would move to be digital sure wasn't the hardest thing to figure out. And there was a lot of clues that it was going to happen. But, you know, good old Kodak thought traditional film was, you know, where it was going to be. And the same is true with Blockbuster. You know, Blockbuster didn't pay attention to the digital streaming. And as a result, both those companies lost. So your point of having four or five moonshot programs is, is, is proven. You know, these companies, had they had those programs and had they learned from them, they probably wouldn't have failed. Yeah, it's it's a it's always a difficult thing because you're asking a leader to come in and bet essentially against what they're currently doing today. And it takes real leadership to do that. Right. What ends up being very difficult is you have CEOs um, who uh, a CEO in a startup company is surrounded almost entirely by the greatest innovation tools and processes and expectations that we have today. They're constantly living and breathing innovation and proving that their new product deserves to exist. CEOs in very large organizations are surrounded almost entirely by financial services products. These are products that help them manage their debt, manage cash flow, and forecast what their earnings are going to be. So the culture around the CEO is fundamentally different when you're in an early stage company than when you're in a very mature late stage company. And so in order to get that person at the top of a very large company to still have the control, they're often the only person in the company that can actually take big risks and do long-term investments. But if all you're doing is surrounding yourself with financial tools to meet the investor expectations for the next few quarters, where are you going to actually get that innovation from? Because your organization exists in reality, and the truth is most of your innovation programs will be shut down because of, again, one of these external factors that I talked about earlier in the show. So it's a, it's a difficult challenge, and it does take leadership, but most CEOs wanted to become a CEO earlier in their career so that they could affect change and that they could leave a mark and that they could actually make something better and improve it. And the way to do that is to embrace a, a reality you know, based approach that understands what it takes to actually do innovation. And one thing that is tied in with this is a lot of these executives have yes people around them. And there's this culture of yes. And I'm the CEO, don't question me. And I got to hear him at this high, high level and uh, don't bring me bad news. And I've seen it. I've seen it with not just CEOs, but with regional business leaders where it's you only can give them good news and everyone around them is a yes person in their yes click. And that is one of the most dangerous things, not only to business and technology, but also to, to policymakers. And it's a very hard thing to talk about, but the leaders that are able to you know, question those other leaders that are insulated with yes people, one of two things happens. Either they get ousted because they question them or a disruptive change happens and they learn from it and either they're able to take more market or they're not. I, I think 
There are definitely companies where that can be a problem. The thing I've seen a lot more of is um, most senior teams are, are, are pretty exceptional. Um, I, I've worked with a lot of large companies, and the, the senior executives are, are very, very good. Where I think there ends up being problems is that you've got a very large organization run by people. Uh, I'll give you an example of one of the things that I, I've seen a number of times, and I've actually started asking CEOs if this has ever happened to them. Depending on the size of your company, you will often have sort of a, either quarterly or an annual review where all the divisions are coming in and they're sort of giving you an update on where we're at. And then they're also showing like, this is what the future is going to be. These are the things we're working on. And it usually comes at the end of whatever they're presenting. This ends up being a lot of fun because the CEO will sort of grill them on, you know, whatever's going on, you know, you missed your numbers here or whatever and the update. But they always want to have those things about what the future is because when they go out and they talk to investors or they go and talk to the partners that they have, the CEOs are sort of talking about these things. Hey, we got some stuff in the pipeline. And that's how they know what they're going, what's, what's coming in the future. They themselves are not usually directly involved in these things. Okay, This is something that's happening across their organization. What you see a lot is sometimes these things are done on a call or, or people are called in. It's like a town hall type of thing. Um, or if everybody's in one big auditorium as these are going on or a big conference room or boardrooms, different divisions will come in and present. What you'll see is a group will get done presenting and they'll talk about all the things that they have for the future. And the CEO will go, oh, where's that thing uh, that you talked about last year? The, you know, Secret Project X. I was really excited about that. Where's that? And you'll see everybody presenting panic because they killed it. It doesn't exist anymore. And, and they had no idea that the CEO was so excited about that because CEOs who are very good don't want to tip their hat about particular things because then people tend to focus only they people really pay attention this is a uh, a leadership issue when leaders say boy i really like uh, or, you know if you overhear the ceo saying oh i really like tacos suddenly rumor spreads through the company that the ceo loves tacos and every meal is a taco and it's like well right but they also like other stuff they just happen to say that once so good ceos often don't spend too much time even on things that they're really interested in because they don't want to disrupt a team that maybe is spending only part of their energy on that but now the thing that they were expecting to hear about they were really excited about it doesn't exist anymore and what happened to it and so this is actually a, an interesting thing that now after talking to a number of ceos they, they'll this will this happens quite frequently where they think that something's happening and as they're making their plans they assume these things are continuing forward only find out that well, actually, those got cut when we did the budget cuts or when we restructured or when we merged with this group, that project ended up going away. So if you're the only person in the organization who can really set the tone for the future and direct where you're going, if you assume certain things are happening and they're not happening, that ends up being a problem. So for me, that ends up being a more tangible example from the real world of sort of the communication issues around leaders. It's not that the leaders are bad or they're getting wrong information. It's just that there's enough separation from the people doing the actual innovation and the people who are actually trying to change the destiny of the company that there is sort of a bad telephone game thing happening where the information's out of date or, or sometimes incorrect. And you know some of them are bad leaders, Grant. <laughs> well, that's not all of them, but definitely that, there's... That's there, a possibility as well. There's, yeah. there's a fair <laughs> share of them that, that are. Yeah. And um, as we come to the close of the show, um, what we usually like to do is you know, predict maybe the future. We've seen in the last 15 years the growth of um, 
social media. Uh, we've seen the uh, expansion of machine learning and the maturity of artificial intelligence. Uh, digital cameras have gotten better. CPU processing has gotten faster. Battery life has gotten better. Um, HD screens have gotten better and thinner. Uh, smartphones have gotten lighter, thinner. Processing power is better. In your view, Grant Wood of Kenosha Labs, what does the future hold for technology? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Um, I think there's a couple of things that are on the horizon. Uh, the first is, I think, technology that we use primarily around security and privacy protection in the data center is going to migrate into the home. And I think it's going to be incredibly disruptive to many of the current business models that we have for online companies where um, privacy takes a backseat and we sort of spy on our customers. The next thing is I think that financial services and the banking industry in, in general, I think, um, I think a majority of the large banks probably won't exist in the next 10 years. Um, you'll probably have one that still exists in its current form, but um, mo there's so much disruption happening in that space now. It's just it, we're, we're just waiting for a tipping point for that to shift, and you won't have the big banks that you have today, at least not in the way that they exist today. Um, the other thing is I think you're about to see some major shifts as sort of the, uh, it's called fourth generation manufacturing, as the techniques that are used in that space become sort of commoditized. And I think you're going to start seeing some interesting like Kickstarter projects around manufacturing technology. I think that's a thing we haven't seen yet. And I think it's on the verge of happening, which will allow sort of what 3D printers have done. You know, 3D printers are, are something you can buy and you can have in your home, but all you really make is stuff that's gonna end up floating in the ocean. It's just, you now you can print garbage at home. That's great. You know, the weird plastic things. Um, but I think that showed that there's an appetite for people to be able to make their own stuff. And I think intelligent systems around manufacturing that can control multiple systems and then go beginning to end on complex products is gonna be the next thing that'll end up sort of in the, in the hands of very small shops and in, in individuals where you'll be able to do some really interesting distributed manufacturing on demand and create a new generation of um, bespoke products. Products that have incredibly high quality like an Apple product from a machine fit and finish perspective, but that also have a huge amount of custom customizability that are also seen as handmade products. And I think in the next 10 years that that is gonna be a thing. And we're already seeing the beginning of it with sort of the merging of really advanced marketing techniques being combined with handmade products and services out of small niche communities, both in um, cities like Duluth, cities like Pittsburgh. You're seeing this a little bit in Detroit um, where you've got really expensive handmade one-off um, products being made that I think those people will evolve to do more and more sophisticated products uh, it won't be the same companies, but it'll be a, a new generation of people coming in, taking advantage of sort of the democratization of fourth generation manufacturing and micro manufacturing being being more of a thing. So those would be the big things that I think are um, are worth having more discussions around uh, in terms of things that I don't think people expect. All good, well reasoned points. So thanks again, Grant Wood you of bet. Thanks for having me. Labs. Um, if folks want to get a hold of you, where do they need to go? If you go to the Notion Labs website, it's K-N-O-T-I-O-N-L-A-B-S dot C-O-M. And um, you can contact us. You can read about our innovation anti-patterns on our anti-page. 
And um, that's a great way to figure out how to get a hold of us as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And everyone listening, we will catch you next time.